Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Hi, and welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. I'm Cindy House. Thanks for listening today. Uh, we are about to dive into an awesome interview with Sarah Watkins of Nickel Creek. Before we get into that, have you signed up for our mailing list? If not, you can do so at our website, basicfolk.com. You can connect with us there. Or if you'd rather, you can follow us on social media at Basic Folk Pod. Or if you'd rather do neither of those things, that is also fine. We are a listener-supported podcast, so if you are, have been listening for a while and would like to make a contribution, you can help pay for your listening by going to basicfolk.com slash donate. Nickel Creek, the bluegrass trio who's been in existence for almost 35 years, returns with their first original release in nine years. It's brainy. It's theatrical. Its twists and turns are not predictable from its authors who have entered midlife. To that point, there is lots of middle on this album. The middle's not the most exciting or thrilling part. See the beginning or the end. But there is plenty happening and plenty to celebrate. And the band says that's the feeling they want to convey through the record. Lucky us, we get to crawl into the band's history and approach to the new music via folk fashion icon Sarah Watkins. Despite the focus on the middle, Sarah gets into the beginning of her musical experience, talking of her practicing habits, musical summer camp, and being friends with 70-year-old bluegrass players at the local pizza parlor. She also talks about her vocal prowess, particularly on Where the Long Line Leads, where she blazes, singing on the very edge of her voice, and it's so exciting. Of course, we talk about her history of stage outfits, from mid-length skirts to fashionable jumpsuits. And she's done a lot for fashion in the folk world over the course of her career. Sarah Watkins is a dream from Nickel Creek to I'm With Her and the Watkins Family Hour. Enjoy this wonderful person and go get the new Nickel Creek record. Holy cow, it is so good. All right, we're going to take a listen to the song Where the Long Line Leads. And then we'll get to our conversation with Sarah Watkins of Nickel Creek on Basic Folk. Sarah Watkins, this is a dream come true. Thank you for talking to me today. Oh my goodness, I'm so happy happy to talk to you. Uh, before we begin, I wanted to list some of my favorite resources for this interview. Um, you were on a podcast called Allison Rosen is Your New Best Friend, <laughs> and you also did an interview with Hattie Webb on her Conversations with Women in Music video series, so shout out to those two uh, resources. Um, really good stuff. That's right. Okay. Thank you so much. All right. We're going to get into this. It's going to be exciting. You're going to love it. 
Growing up, your family kind of presented music to you and your brother as something like normal and fun to do. It was like a low pressure situation. How do you think that their approach to music and this like low stakes vibe impacted how you felt about music? And then if there ever was a time when that started to change for you? Well, it was it was low pressure in that it was it was just very normal, right? Like I, I grew up seeing a band play weekly, a little bluegrass band called Bluegrass Etc. play weekly. And it was like at a pizza parlor. So it was super casual. People, kids were running around. We were like, you know, playing balloon volleyball as, you know, five-year-olds, six-year-olds. And so I, th- and then I, we would also see audience members be invited up to sing a song. So it, it made it just seem like something that everyone can do or does do. And it didn't seem like something that only, um, it wasn't a big stage, like a pop star. It didn't seem like an exception to the rule that somebody could do this. It seemed like the rule. And Hmm. so I think because of that, um, it didn't feel like, oh, I've got to choose. This is a, this is a a big deal. I'm going to study my whole life to be this thing. And then I'm going to be the only person who's me. It was just like, no, you're not that special. Like everyone knows how to sing songs. <laughs> so it, it felt like it was, um, very much something that I wasn't spe- You weren't special for being able to sing a song, even though we would get free ice cream sometimes after we sang. That's um, a sweet perk. <laughs> but it, it was just something that, that is a semi-normal thing to be able to contribute. And, um, I think, however, because we happened to, uh, there was an expectation for a certain amount of commitment. And I think that was something that had to be encouraged. Like I didn't always want to practice as a six-year-old or seven-year-old or eight-year-old. Um, but because I, we, Nickel Creek started when I was eight, there soon became these rewards, this opportunity to perform, these opportunities to compete that felt like enough of a reward that, you know, when I didn't want when I wanted to like do some, do something that prohibited me from a daily practice, um, it was enough of a carrot that was dangled in front of me to, to uh, have as, um, something that I, a goal, you know, something that I was mm-hmm. still working toward. Um, mm-hmm. and there was a, soon we got to be part of a big community of other kids, other players who, um, were doing on a similar track. And, um, that was really, um, an incredibly warm um, bath to to jump into. Ooh, good visual. Warm bath. Um, what kind of learner were you on the fiddle? You said you didn't always want to practice, but what has been your relationship to practicing and learning? I've, I've been thinking a lot lately about how I'm very grateful that I learned how to learn something. As a kid, I had teachers who taught me how the the right questions to ask and they taught me how to identify my own goals and then be curious about ways to reach those goals and maybe I would have gotten learned those skills some other way but I happened to learn them through music through through that practice through practicing fiddle um mostly and I, I still, I, I, I use those goals constantly. Like a lot of this new Nickel Creek material for this new album, I played the stuff on the record and I sang the stuff on the record. But um, for instance, a lot of the, the, the music, a lot of the, the background vocal stuff that we, we added sort of after the bulk of the song was recorded, it's just part of the production. Like, oh, we, we could support a certain section a little more by developing this theme, singing it a little bit longer. So then we would record, you know, some like choir vocals in the background. Well, we want to know how to, we, we want to play that live. And so that mm. requires learning how to do that. And some of that's super, it's not idiomatic at all. It's, it's challenging in a new fun way. So I have to figure out how to learn some of this stuff. And, um, and the counterpoint is, is not really like anything that I've done before. So I'm applying a lot of those skills that I learned even as a, as a teenager of being curious and figuring out how far I can break a concept down to just get one toe in the door and then another toe and then figure out how to, you know, kind of make my way through 
and eventually get comfortable. Hmm. Cool. When you were a kid, you felt like you were living in two different worlds. There was music world, Sarah, and there was private school world, Sarah. How did you act in each of these worlds? And where do you see those parts still existing? Oh, interesting. I think like my school self was just trying to get along, trying to figure things out <laughs> like every other kid. <laughs> you know, I think most kids are, yeah, I, I was just faking it, just trying to be, tr- trying to figure out who I was. The music self wasn't as hard because um, I was mostly around grown-ups who were really nice to me and encouraging. And so I found myself drawn toward grown-ups. So I was like the kid at school who hung out with the teachers at recess. And then I was teacher's pet, which was not a great place to, that didn't help my social life. <laughs> um, mm. And so I, you know, I, I, I just, at school, I was basically just surviving for the weekends for a long time. Um, and then eventually when I started homeschooling, that helped me a lot, marry, marry those two identities and figure out who I was in, as a kid who wasn't mm. at a festival, um, hanging out with non-musician friends. And that was really um, a good experience for me. I got more, more friends when I was homeschooled um, in this mm. great community. And now I think, you know, we're all still like living down our high school identities, right? I think that's probably going to happen <laughs> till, till our last day. It's interesting to hear you kind of like identify yourself as an unconventional student where like the conventional way of learning in school wasn't working out for you. And if that observation sort of impacts how you parent your, your kids when it comes to their education. Yeah, I'm sure it will, um, affect it. Um, I'm sure it has affected it. I, I, I've, I've noticed that my, um, I, the way that I have taught fiddle at fiddle camps and at music camps and taught singing has I, I noticed that very early on, I was applying some of the same communication skills when teaching at camps to teaching my daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, just, you know, the thing that every parent does of like, what if I explain it this way? What if I explain it this way? Is this the way you need it to be explained to you so that you understand? Um, those are the things that I first applied it while teaching at fiddle camps. And, um, and uh, so I definitely have applied that. And I'm sure, you know, having a slightly alternative um, education is going to affect the way that I that I see her education. You know, I'm, I'm hopeful that that more options happen for kids because it was definitely helpful for me to get out of a larger setting and more in, into a smaller setting. That was very helpful for me. I, I, I remember feeling around I, uh, I started homeschooling um, in seventh grade. And I remember in sixth grade thinking, maybe I'll just give up, like not in not in a not in a huge way, just like socially. Maybe I'll just like uh, give up trying to be me and I'll just be the person they want me to be. And mm. I know every kid thinks like that sometimes. And it's such a such a sad thing. And I was really lucky to like meet a friend who validated who I was and just all these like mm. she was weirder than I was. And it was. Um, so freeing to to have that, um, and I was like, no, I'm gonna stick around a little bit longer. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with me for a little bit longer. I mean, that's great. Are you so? Are when you're teaching, are you able to like identify your students who maybe learn in in an unconventional way? I don't know what conventional is for fiddle tunes. Um, Good point. <laughs> uh, but. Um, I think everybody just has, everyone has different backgrounds, you know, whether they come from more of a classical background or a fiddle background, or they just picked it up themselves. I think the important thing is identifying the goal and for the student to identify the goal. So Mm. does it sound the way you want it to sound? Does it sound the way that it does when your favorite fiddle player sounds? What's different about the sound? What are some strategies that you could do to adjust your sound to start making it sound, make it, making it more like the person that you want to sound like? Uh, mm-hmm. And those are broad stroke, broad strokes toward a goal. And in there, there are so many details and so many nuances that the more you get familiar with your instrument or your craft, 
the more you can identify um, ways to make slight adjustments that'll really affect the outcome. And it's the same with everything, like woodworking, writing prose, um, every, everything, you know, the, the more you get into wow. a, a, so a, true. a craft, um, the more, uh, but, but there's no way to get there without, without like first learning how to use a saw, you know, and like get some sandpaper out and then you got some tools and then you got to there's a lot of steps. And, um, so depending on, on where any student is or where any player is and what their goals are, then, you know, you kind of work from there. We were talking about how as a kid, you made friends easily through music. Um, at first, you were talking about how your friends were all adults, um, like the 70-somethings and bluegrass, etc. Then you found younger people playing music through festivals and fiddle camps. Why do you think it was so easy for you to connect to other people through music? And how has that ability to connect through music evolved for you? I think because it was a commonality. And um, so we were using the same vernacular, like bluegrass, particularly and folk music in general, has a um, carries with it a huge reverence for the for the historical side of of the songs. And um, so there's a shared respect for the older artists, the older materials, uh, the older songs and, and players. And that's something that, you know, to some degree, a, an eight-year-old can enjoy or at least appreciate that they should enjoy. And also, uh, you know, your, your 40 or 50-year-old teacher and, and the, the, even the grandparent musicians who are around, especially them, you know, and they get to share it with you. And so um, there's a wonderful connection that happens there that I think is also validating in and of itself, you know, a way to connect with older people um, is a beautiful thing. And so I think that started, that probably was at the root of it. And, you know, as I grew up and started to have my own relationship with music, um, I think for whatever reason, it has become a fundamental way that I communicate and when I'm, when I'm writing lyrics, it's often a way to communicate with myself because it's a way of sorting through things. And often I, I don't write things when I'm at a settled place. I write things when I'm unsettled and mm. when there's disruption and when things are not clear. Fiddle, I actually, if, if too much time goes past without feeling connected with my fiddle, I, I start to... I start to notice it. I start to feel disconnected with a part of myself. And I, I don't want to get too dramatic about it, but I, I do notice it. And Please. <laughs> I'm, just not a, I'm just not a whole person if I don't have my fiddle with me. <laughs> no, it's, it's not like that, but it, it is something I notice. And it's something that there's a joy that I have and a free feeling that I have when I am have been playing fiddle enough that I feel you know, completely at ease with it. And I, and I can, I can improvise the way that I want to improvise and I can hit everything that I'm going for and everything that I want to do. I mean, I'm only as good as I am. So there's, there are things that I'm not going to be able to do, but there, there is a certain fluency that like when you wake up in the morning and you like find yourself not talking to anybody for the first two hours and then you step out and you go to a coffee shop and you're t somebody talks to you and they're like, blah, 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 and you're like, I, I don't, I'm not, I'm not there yet. Like I haven't, I haven't done this work yet. <laughs> That's how it is. And so you have to kind of shake out of it. And when, when I, when, uh, the importance of, of practice and the value of it is just the joy that, that, that I get when I can say what I want to say musically. And, um, mm -hmm. that involves having ideas in the first place, which is a whole other thing. But having something to say and then being able to say it, whether it's with your mouth or with your pen or with your with your paintbrush or with your instrument is, I think, mm -hmm. an incredible joy. And in the play space, oh, this is what I was trying to say before, that 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 space like the, the, the that there's been so much talk of the importance of play and in your head, the importance of losing track of time. And the value of that, it's, it just brings so much life to me. 
Uh, I wanted to, I love talking about summer camp and you attended fiddle camp, Mark O'Connor's fiddle camp. And it seems like it was hugely formative for you. What was the vibe of the camp like and how did you try to like bring that vibe with you outside of camp and impact the type of musician you are? I mean, I was 13 and 14, so I don't think I was consciously thinking about that stuff. I I also did attend it later, um, as in my early 20s when it was in San Diego. But I think, you know, I certainly apply in a teaching situation I'm in. I, I, I remember those those days. A lot of the friends that I still have, I've met at fiddle camp. Um, a lot of musician friends. Does it feel like when you go to a festival and a lot of your summer camp friends are there, it like turns into summer camp reunion? Yeah, I think I think fe- festivals are often that now. Like, f- and they were that then as well. But without without the the fiddle the fiddle camp experience, um, some festivals can really feel like that. Um, there are certain festivals that are small enough like the massive festivals don't have that vibe at all to me like like the Bonnaroo's and the Coachella's and stuff but the smaller festivals um really can have that can have that feel um especially the ones that um I've noticed my favorite festivals are the ones that have a a capacity (laughs) um so many festivals are just on a giant field or it's like uh, mm-hmm. like, or, or, or maybe not like maybe it's, um, maybe there are trees around, but there's people wandering in and out and it just at like a, a capacity, whether it's like 3000 or 10,000 and there's a limit it, there's something about the vibe too, of just like, this is enough. Like we have enough and there's something <laughs> about that that is so there's something about that that's just calming to me where it's just like, no, we mm. don't, we don't need more. We have enough. And there's a rest inherent in those places um, where you're not just hustling to like sell more tickets and like, and earn more money. It's just like, no, we're here. We're going to have a great time. And we have enough. We have everything we wanted. We have everything that we needed. And that's all. Let's, let's do this. I think it was on Allison's podcast. You were talking about how of Nickel Creek, you are, and this is like a direct quote, definitely not the star of the band. Um, and then you said, Chris Feely is an outrageous musician. And a lot of times, this is what I want to hear more about. A lot of the time you thought he was like a normal musician. Oh, it's funny. And that your musicianship was subpar. I don't know if you remember talking about that uh, on the podcast or not, but. Gosh, can't live anything like, down. Um, <laughs> well, it is true. I mean, he, he is an, an he has a, an incredible reach musically. Um, and, uh, I think one of the nice things about the band is it would not be Nickel Creek with any other three musicians. And at this point, like I remember we, I remember when we were 18 signing a contract, it was like a weird tax sort of like thing. And um, we're signing a bunch of contracts, like sign a bunch of sign up with a bunch of people. And um, and they're like, is the band going to always be the three of you or can two of you guys create the band Nickel Creek? Can one of you guys call it Nickel Creek if it's just one of you guys on stage? And all three of us are like, no, of course, it's got to be all three of us, which is a very kid thing to say. But it's also 100 percent true. We are all part of many, many, many projects and none of them sound like Nickel Creek. And um, I think there's a very special thing that happens when any combination of musicians comes around. And that's the beautiful thing about about collaboration. And I just, I wouldn't trade anything for it. I love, I love being in bands. Sweet. Okay, let's talk about feminism. My limited knowledge of feminism. I actually um, talked it out one time with Anais Mitchell on this podcast. And I feel like I learned more She's like, I know nothing. And I also didn't know nothing. And then we were like in real time looking it up on Wikipedia. So anyways, with the limited knowledge of feminism, I want to talk about, yeah, she's the best. I want to talk about the type of feminism that you and also me, we're around the same age, we're both experiencing kind of at the beginning of our careers where it was a third wave feminism, which was kind of a weird brand of feminism. It was kind of like, 
great, it's all over, we're equal now, everyone can stop yelling about it, obviously not true. What was your experience, especially like post-2000, with feminism within your work environment, and how have you seen it evolve? Well, when I, I, I'm, it's hard for me to think about it post-2002, because I was in my own little world for so long, and in, in that, in that, at that point, or at least for the next five, ten, five or seven years, I grew up thinking feminism was a little bit of a bad word, totally. um, which I, I guess would pre- be rooted in the "it's over" kind of thing. Don't be too greedy. If we want to get into conspiracy theories, I think it's like right wing <laughs> propaganda that feminism is a bad word and yeah. just the control of women. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm sure there's a lot of, you know, there's, there's a lot of reasons we got to where we are. And um, I think that my, growing up, the way that affected me was that I, I think the, the version that I grew up with was to be one of the guys was, was the right way to do it. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so, I, you know, I felt I had to reject girly things. And I felt I also, I, I think I, I'm, it's hard to separate and parse out the feminism thing combined with like purity culture, which, cause I grew up in, in adjoining that kind of thing. Um, so there's so much about just like head down, do the work kind of mentality that served me well in some ways. Um, kept me, I, I, I don't recommend it, but I <laughs> did have, uh, some, I learned some good skills about focusing and I think I psychologically, um, was able to work through some things, um, I'm being very vague, I know, but. I I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know how it changed. Why 2002? Why, what's that? What's that? Why that year? Oh, I said post 2000. Did I say 2002? Or maybe 2000. Why? Why? What, what happened then? That was the that was kind of like when the record came out. The, oh. like the, the quote unquote, the first official Nickel Creek record yeah. came out. It's and it seemed like your career was like I wasn't starting I wasn't to like, really take off thinking like that at the time. I wasn't thinking about, I was still in the, um, in, in the camp of don't, don't hand it, don't hand it to the girls if they don't deserve it, which like, fair enough. But, um, there's also a lot to be said for representation. There's a lot to be said for also not giving, uh, women a harder time than you would the men. (laughs) And, um, right. Uh, I don't know. I'm thinking about award shows. I'm thinking about like different things. I I was enough in my own zone, my own camp, my own band that really the only dynamics that I were I was I was focused on was was that was the dynamic of the band, of our career, of the people we were working with and I should I I'm embarrassed to say I, I wasn't thinking about that. It was kind of all consumed with um with the career at that point. Mhm. And it wasn't until after the fact that I started thinking a little bit more of that and just starting to adjust my own consideration about my own place in the world. Like as I started working on solo records for the first time and started thinking about um, who I wanted to be on my own two feet, um, that I started thinking about things in bigger pictures like that. Okay, I just saw your outfit. It's incredible. Thanks. And it's perfect timing because um, now I want to talk about the important topic of fashion. Um, you are an icon. <laughs> I feel like oh my gosh, you. <laughs> I feel like you, Eva O'Donovan, Laura Cortese, Kristen Andreessen. You know those two ladies, oh, right? I know all of those ladies. Yes. All did the folk world a huge service by like coming in hot with your stage looks. I used to... Um, oh, my gosh. I used to... Laura and I, when we both lived in Boston, I, like, got her to go shopping with me a couple of times, and it was, like, life-changing. <laughs> Anyways. You are part of that group. I feel like a huge... Like, you're you're maybe the leader. You and Aoife. It's hard to Wait, there's narrow no, it down. I, I, Aoife is, is definitely um, someone that I text... 
regularly being like, what is happening right now? <laughs> what am I supposed yeah. to be wearing? <laughs> right. Here's my outfit. Yeah. <laughs> so with that in mind, how did you learn to style yourself and oh how has gosh. your comfort and knowledge of fashion changed? I don't have any knowledge. I just try stuff and then I regret it usually. Um, <laughs> I don't. You I, text Aoife. I know. <laughs> But she's such a great lover of people and of individuality. She'd just be like, looks amazing. What are you talking about? I don't know. You know, it's funny because I feel like most, like my early 20s, a lot of my early 20s was busy trying to just like not be seen and be be a little bit invisible. Um, And so I was wearing a lot of like mid shin length skirts and black tank tops. Um, But, you know, with flip flops. So it was like cash. Um, so... Oh, yeah, you're wearing flip-flops on, the, on like, uh, the Tonight Show. Oh, gosh, that's, that does not surprise me. Yeah, because I was, you know, an artist of the people. It worked, though. <laughs> yeah, you're like, listen, man. I'm, I'm still saying you can take this. the San Diego out. The girl can't take it out. <laughs> She's always going to be San Diego. Um, I think it was a way of me... I think, honestly, I think the flip-flops were a way of me still feeling like myself. Which, you know, that's not a bad thing. And I think, I don't know. I mean, like it's, it's fun to feel a little bit daring on stage because um, you're not going to get a ton of flack, at least not in the folk world. People really aren't going to take a lot of time to like be negative about what you're wearing because most people are nice. And you don't have to talk to them if you don't want to after a show. So um, you can just do what you want to do and not have to get any feedback, which is really fun. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know. I, I think it's I think it's fun. Um, I am in the process of figuring out what to wear on this Nickel Creek tour. And so the the strategy, it's 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 fun to kind of think about how we want to present this show and talking to Sean and Chris about like, you know, the strategy of what what the show is going to look like, what we're going to um, what we want people to experience while they're there, how to have the um, the concert represent the album artwork and that kind of stuff. So um, it's, a, it's a fun phase to kind of be crafting that. Any um, scoops you can give us about your Nickel Creek 2023 tour outfits? Uh, mid-shin skirts I'm, I'm are coming with, back? I'm done with mid-shin skirts. <laughs> I can't do it. Oh, my gosh. So much stuff is coming. It's, some, it's, it's crazy. Like the multi-layered thin T-shirts. No, thank you. Do you remember those? Well, they're coming back. It's, Uh-oh. there's just so much, there's so much that I'm just not happy about. Like the weird asymmetrical satiny shot tops. I'll probably get one. I'll probably eat my words, but cheapers. It's just a lot to re- I always revisit all of. Yeah, it is weird. You're like looking around and you're like, you all look like you're on the original 90210. Yeah, yeah. But like better. <laughs> For some reason, it's like, I could see myself wearing that. Um you and Sean have a long history with the Los Angeles club Largo. Um, in 2002, you started the Watkins family hour, our residency, which um, led to some great collaborations and albums. Largo has an incredible community surrounding it, including very famous people like yourself, Amy Mann, Gillian Welch, Fiona Apple. What has been Largo's importance for you when it comes to nurturing your musicianship? Oh, it's been huge. I cannot overstate the uh, the impact that being a part of Largo has had on me. When I started coming going to Largo uh, as a fan to see other people perform, I was like just deep, deep, deep in tons of Nickel Creek touring. Um, it was great, uh, but it was just one thing all the time. And so it was... I remember like we would ha- we were we were touring basically year round regardless of whether there was a new album out or not just constantly and 3 weeks on one week off uh for quite a while so we had one week that um would kind of be a, a recharge and quote unquote recharge you can't recharge in one week um and so we drive I remember Sean and I would drive up to LA like once or twice a week to see shows John Bryan's show and then, you know, maybe somebody else, like maybe a comedy show or um, Grantley Phillips or, or somebody. And um, the Paul F. Tompkins show. And 
it was incredible. And it really was a recharge to be on the receiving end of incredible music and just be gifted this like this experience of of inspiration and learning. And we got to become a part of that. We were invited to like open for some of these people and then share the stage with some of them um, in a collaborative way because it was a very, it is a very fluid stage. Especially in the old days, it was a corner stage with like 120 people and dinner bar and and it was uh, incredibly fluid between the audience and the stage. And from the corner stage, you could see the kitchen lights and the kitchen lights would, would shine through the backlit. You could see the silhouettes of, of various people and, and identify like, oh, that guy wears that hat. I know he's here. He maybe maybe they'll sit in. Um, I see so and so back there. And basically any musician who was there was free to you could call him up, especially if they were in that little back corner. Um, and uh, it was just an incredible gift. I feel like I learned how to sing at Largo. Cool. Be- I feel like I, I've, I've, I cannot overstate the, um, the importance of having the regularity of that gig and to just play with different ple- people and different instrumentation and listen to different songs and learn different songs. And it was just, it was just so, so, so important um, and remains a very big part of our, of our life. Don't tell Flanagan, but one time I took a picture inside of Largo. <laughs> How dare you? They do. They, there is, they, they, they do. They have a very um, strict no recording, no photography policy. Was that the new Largo or was that, that was recent? Like it was what? the old Largo. Oh, the old one. Yeah, that yeah. was nice. Hard to sneak a picture in that place. They would take away phones. This was an actual digital camera. I'll tell you the story. This tell was me. an actual digital camera. Yeah. And... I was there with uh, Deb Talon and Steve Tannen, the the Weepies. Mm-hmm. We were just like, we're gonna go see. I think Grantley Phillips. Are you picking up all these names that I'm dropping? Jeez, <laughs> it sounds like I'm a name. And also, like I would go out and um, listen. You're friends with stay- with famous folkies. I, I get it. Oh yeah. Here's another one. Sorry, Sarah. This is embarrassing to do all this, but I was visiting Tom Brousseau. Aww. And. Um, I was, I don't know what he was, maybe he was opening for Grant and uh, Deb and Steve came with, uh, and I was like, oh, you know, Steve, take a picture of me and Deb. And then I showed it to Tom after the show. He was like, you're not supposed to take pictures in in Largo. And I had no idea. That's so funny. I'm not even mad at you because it's so sneaky what you did. That's so funny. He, uh, I, I think that just shows like what a musician's, place that Largo was and and remains Mm -hmm. to be where a lot of the audience would be other musicians or artists or or makers of of some way in some way and um you just could always you would always know that you would see something unique um and likely very 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 good yeah that's the first place I saw comedy on Monday nights they would have experimental they would have comedy and they started, mm-hmm. like, I think in the early days, it was, like, very, very alt comedy that nobody else would really book. And then it just happened that, like, a lot of those comedians became very successful. Um, and now do shows there all the time. But but people would, it, it was incredible. Like, I'd, I'd never seen stand-up before. It was it was really neat to see people experimenting on stage. And um, all that stuff, I think, taught me a lot about how to be present on stage and how perfect doesn't matter as much as being present Mm. that that's that's the most thing that's the thing that matters the most all right nickel creek is into its 34th year the new album celebrants is out if you're listening in real time it comes out tomorrow um if you're not it's out now um it's the first (laughs) all new release in nine years 18 new songs don't Pretty. it's not a full 18 Woo. it's not yes 18 tracks if um, you want to listen if you want to skip ahead you have to hit the cd button 18 times well 17 but yes i technically 17 <laughs> I, it's not um it's not 18 full tracks but it is 18 moments um a few of them are more like vignettes or um a reprise and uh yeah it was a very 
big and unique experience writing and recording this project. We got together during the pandemic for a month in California and started that way. In beautiful Santa Barbara. Yeah, for the first two weeks, we were at a friend's house. He wasn't using it, and we got to get our families together and just catch up. Oh, so fun. It was really neat because we have an incredible foundation. We grew up together. I've known Chris, Sean and I have known Chris since he was eight. I was eight, Sean was 12. We knew each other's parents and grandparents. We played their our cousin, our mutual, like our, our cousin's parties we uh for a big part of our life knew a great deal about each other so you know chris's cousins names and stuff and ages and the names of their children and everything well now not their children but like when we were growing up there there was we were all um attending a lot of the we would see each other a lot and we would speak very fluently and it was really nice coming together at this stage in our life our music our all, all of our musicianship has evolved a little bit over the years our personhood has evolved over the years and our life situations have evolved. Family members have passed on, new family members have entered and it was really neat to to catch up on that level and to celebrate still choosing to be together after all this time, mm-hmm. still choosing to come together and to do the work to like be like, who are you now? Like, how do you, what do you, like the world is crazy. This is happening. What do you think about that? In very real time, we were we were catching up, diving in, and um, sorting through what it means to be us right now. And um, mm-hmm. it's, it's been an incredibly gratifying process. A lot of these songs are reflecting what happens in the middle. There's a lot of similar themes. Nickel Creek is kind of in midlife now. The middle is not as dramatic or action-packed as the beginning or the end. So how did the process of writing these songs change your feelings about the middle and being in the middle? I don't think it changed how I feel about the middle, but maybe it expanded a vocabulary about it, the way that diving into any topic can. Yeah, I think that there's just, you know, that there isn't, it, it can, it can, the middle can often be seen and experienced as a necessary thing to get to the end. Um, and not, not explored, uh, when in fact most of the story is in the middle. And mm. those little things, the, what seem to be slight, tiny choices, can make huge impacts on our lives, as we know. And they are more choices. You know, we're born into a, into a certain situation. Most of us are set off on a course, um, largely based on where we're born in, born into. And then, you know, uh, at some point we all die. But the choices are in the middle. And those are really, those are, those are each defining moments. And to, they define a person to that person. Like that, like when I make a choice, it, it, it explains, it, it defines something to me about me. Where it's like, oh, I, I guess that's important to me that I made that choice, that I prioritize that. It's like an observation. It's, mm-hmm. it's evidence of a feeling. And those choices are, are, are fascinating. And uh, so a lot, of, a lot of the material on this album is about uh, this, the friction that's inherent to staying, to, uh, to being engaged. Um, and happens in the middle quite often. Yeah. And it's, it's necessary and it's, uh, it's, it's important. The album title celebrants, um, you said it's one of the primary feelings you want people to come away with while they're listening to the album. Um, I feel like it's really, it's a challenge to stop and celebrate things so how do you come to like appreciate and celebrate different successes in your life? And how do you take time to reflect and celebrate? I celebrate uh, most things truly when I'm like <laughs> by myself in nature. Like I'll celebrate with my friends and have a great time. But if something is like very big, 
um, like an internal celebration. Those are, those are really my celebrations. Like Mm. achieving is something is really great or like, you know, being recognized in some ways. So nice. But truly the thing that I might celebrate in that moment is like gratitude to myself for like working that hard or a a sense of, of pride that I was able to, to do something and recognizing a strength in me that kept me going. And that would be the thing that I celebrate by myself, you know, in a Mm. field, um, or a forest or the ocean. Um, and truly those are the, those are the moments of celebration for me. Mm. That's beautiful. Um, okay. I'm really going to amp you up here on this next question, which is about your voice. Holy shit. The song where the long line leads you like, you let it rip. And there are other times where you have done this incredible vocal performance like Destination from Nickel Creek's A Dotted Line. Um, you have a couple of solo songs like When It Pleases You and Move Me. Um, this song, though, there is this like fire unlike I have ever heard from you before. And I feel like your voice is like this new secret weapon for Nickel Creek. I just like... <laughs> I want to hear you sing this song live, but what has it been like for you to step into this like newfound voice you've been using in the last like decade or, or so? Yeah. I mean, I, um, I've, I really have enjoyed learning how to sing and I'm still learning how to sing. I think that I, 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 for my, my experience with my voice has very much been tied to my experience as a person. I, don't know that it's like that for everybody, but it certainly was for me where I felt small in when I, when I, when I have felt small in my life, my voice sounded small or when I felt small in certain ways. And as I have aged and when I was around 30, I noticed a shift. Um, I also got a great vocal vocal coach that I really love, um, named Liz Lewis out in Los Angeles. And she's, um, been really shout helpful. out to Liz shout out to Liz I don't know her um who uh has really helped me with some technique and there's been times on singing uh certain songs in the studio that I've called her and been like I don't know how to do this and then we'd like do a lesson and she would teach me techniques to co- reconsider how I'm adjusting and where I'm adjusting and what to do and all of a sudden I go back in the next day and I can sing it and it sounds much much oh, better great immediately <laughs> and uh so that's been really She's great. She's like a therapist slash vocal coach. Well, I mean, it's it's just it's just technique. Like I think there's this feeling. It's like walking and running. Like we're never really taught how to walk or run. And you might learn like, oh, I've been running wrong my entire life. Like that's why everything mm-hmm. hurts. Like, <laughs> and singing, we all kind of think like, oh, if I just hold my note instead of speaking, I'll just like hold my note longer, and then I'm singing, which is true but there are there's so much to learn and um so i'm trying to take advantage of people that know a lot more than me on that department Mm. and um and this material is just really fun like where the long line leads originally was gonna be one that chris sang and um i just basically told them that i should sing it and yes it was immediately different and um, I didn't really have a song like that before, and so that was really, really fun. Thank you for for saying that. I, I I've been working on my singing a lot, and and I, I like the range on the album. I love I love that mm. it's that there are a lot of songs that are super intimate and quiet, and there is a depth to the dynamic. And then there are other songs that um, require much more out of me and or a different kind of out of me. And um, it's mm. it's really going to be fun figuring out how to do all that live. Sarah, are you up for a quick lightning round? I am the slowest lightninger, but sure. That's great. Okay, here we go. What is a song that makes you cry every time? Oh, um, without a doubt, Aretha Franklin um, singing at the Kennedy Center. Um, the, there's a YouTube, there are YouTubes of it. Um, she's singing. You make me feel like a natural woman. You make woman. me feel like a natural woman. And it, she takes me, her coat off. Makes me cry every stinking time. 
Oh my gosh, I'm gonna watch that right after this. Oh, Oof, that's a good one. What a beautiful, perf- incredible performance. What color is your soul? Golly day. When you said it, I, I thought like this, like rusty orange, orangey red. So I'll just do that. Ooh, sweet. What is your karaoke song? I have not done karaoke in a long time, but it's usually something by Bonnie Raitt. Oh, awesome. Which band of yours would make the best reality TV show? Uh, okay, so basically that's just Watkins Family Hour, Nickel Creek, or I'm with her. Mm-hmm. Um, probably Nickel Creek. I would say Nickel Creek. You get the sibling or, I mean, thing you could, in there. You could pull in, you could pull in um, the Mutual Admiration Society. I think Nickel Creek would be pretty good. As well. Okay. We got a lot. Sweet. We got a I lot of... Wait. Yeah. Yeah, it'll be good. It'll be Can't good. Can't wait to see it. Who is your celebrity crush? Oh, gosh. Um, I don't want to say because I know them. Okay. Pass. <laughs> is it... Yeah. Is it Paul F. Tompkins? No, it's not Paul F. Tompkins. No, it's not. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what is your favorite gas station snack on the road? Uh, favorite gas station snack would be, oh gosh, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I would just say like peanuts or some kind of like dried fruit. I appreciate how serious you took that question. I'm, I'm a serious person. I'm sorry. (laughs) This is the last question. Uh, where is the most beautiful place you've ever visited? Uh, I'll, I'll just say, um... I will say some, I'll say like the, the Rocky Mountains. Um, I grew up camping with my family. Um, before the music stuff all happened, we, we, we went to, my parents were both teachers, and we'd go on these extended camping trips to Colorado, the western slopes of the Rockies, and we'd stay in um, La Plata Canyon, which is outside of Durango. So I have a deep, deep love for like the cold, icy snow melt waters um, with those aspen trees. Sweet. Sarah Watkins' new Nickel Creek album, Celebrants. Thank you for taking the time. The album is phenomenal. I wish you the best of luck learning it all on tour because it is bonkers. I am so excited. And uh, thank you so much (laughs) for talking to me. This episode was produced by John Nungesser. Alex Stanton composes our music. Basic Focus on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. You can find all of our episodes there, wherever you get podcasts. You can search for us on the SiriusXM app by looking for Basic Folk, or you can go to our website, basicfolk.com. Thanks for listening all the way to the end. If you like this episode and you know someone else who would like it too, you should share it with them. They make it easy on the podcast players. You can hit the share button and text your mom, the Sarah Watkins interview. Okay, we'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.